here. And what a church family this has been for Karen and me and for Nathaniel and his family. And what a privilege it is this morning to be able to speak about this subject that I've entitled Eternal Thanksgiving. We're on the cusp of Thanksgiving coming up this Thursday and probably a lot of the ladies here are a little less hip about this than the rest of us because of all the work that's going to be um, required. But Christians have a reason to give thanks. And that reason devolves to a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think very often in preaching and teaching, we take a text and we speak about it and we take aspects of who that person is and what he's done. But what I want to do this morning is to seek to make a case for any of you who are in doubt that the basis of eternal thanksgiving is this person, Jesus Christ. And why? The scripture that I've chosen this morning to read, we will get to. But before we get to it, I'm going to want to talk to you about who this person is, the two aspects of his person, things that so many of you know, but we need to hear, and we need to hear it in a focused way. And then the work of this person, and the two aspects of his work, the aspect that is completely outside of us, and that which we participate in. All of this is grounds for the case that Jesus Christ should be for every one of us the cause of eternal thanksgiving, now and forever. So, give attention as I read this portion from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, the first five verses, in your bulletin on page 8. Therefore, being justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, Hope does not put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God will add his blessing to that reading of his word. So who is Jesus Christ? And why is it so important to begin by thinking about who he is? When we get benefits from various services, at stores, and particularly for the children who are here, when you get presents, it's significant maybe who you get them from, but the real deal is the present. Not so important about the person. But when it comes to our salvation, everything depends on who is this person. And it begins in eternity, before the beginning. Because every time the Bible mentions beginning... It's talking about something God created. God has existed from all eternity, without beginning. 
without ending, in perfect felicity, happiness, everything that could be imagined, in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each God, the three, one God, mystery of all mysteries, perfect communion with each other. Their determination was to create. That's why we're here today. We would not be here without that determination to create, and so God created, and we're familiar. In the space of six days and all very good, God made all things and pronounced them very good. He made Adam and Eve, our first parents, in his image. And we know, alas, what happened to them. Under the temptation of Satan, Eve was deceived. Adam did not protect the garden. He didn't guard his wife. And so at his feet are laid the cause of all that we suffer, of sin, of misery, of wretchedness, of the things we read about every day, illness, death, the horrors of war, the fact that people can't get along, all laid to the sin of Adam and Eve, and we add to it every day. And here's the problem. Every sin committed is committed first and foremost against the majesty and glory and infinite being of God. And therefore, every sin deserves an infinite punishment. And no human being could bear that in time. And God knew this. And God who knew all things and decreed all things, and the great mystery of God's determination, purposed to display a greater degree of his glory in redemption, in his work of salvation, than even in creation. And so when he came to our first parents, along with the hard words that they heard, he came with a message of hope, a promise. There would be someone to deliver them from the dominion of this serpent, this dark spirit. And that would be a person born of woman. Why did the Redeemer have to be born of women? Why couldn't God just do it himself? Here we're talking about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. God hadn't sinned, far be it. As Moses said, far be it from you to do any wrong, or Abraham when he was bargaining for Sodom and Gomorrah, man had sinned. And so man who had sinned had to make reparation, had to atone for sin. But no sinner, no human could pay the price. There was only one solution. The great theologian Anselm answered this many, many centuries ago. Why did God have to become man? Because he must, as man, earn a righteousness that was perfect under the law that was given that could then be applied and shared in and understood and taken by fallen sinners like you and me. So the person of Jesus Christ is eternal God the Son, but added in the womb of the Virgin Mary, as was announced to her and to Joseph, her fiancé, added to that divine nature was a human nature. 
And so that, inf- that unborn child, God Almighty in the womb of the Virgin, that which we celebrate at Christmas, the wonder, the astonishment of this reality. How is it possible? Well, the child was born. And holding in her arms, Mary was holding her creator, the one who had designed all things, who was upholding all things still by the word of his power, says Paul. And he grew. He was a a toddler. And then he was a young person. And we have that one instance of his youth in Luke chapter 2 when he was in the temple talking to the teachers of the law and they were astonished at his answers. What was he doing? He was beginning his work. And so we move from his person, God Almighty, eternal God, united with himself in the womb of the Virgin, a human nature. And so now the God-man, born, could begin his work. And that first aspect of his work was to, throughout his life, his childhood, his teenage years, here at teens, no sin, always responding properly, doing whatever he was told that was lawful. If he was told to do something unlawful, he would have had to object. In fact, in the family of Jesus, the parents were the problems. They were the sinners, but he obeyed them. And he grew, and we have those silent years of when, after 12 years old, he continued to live and obey and keep the law and no doubt offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. He would have never had to offer one for his own sins. Through the 20s, there he was, earning our righteousness by his perfect life under the law. Total obedience. And it wasn't like, I have to keep these rules. No, the Psalms predicted he would come with joy and thankfulness to do these things. In fact, it was the Old Testament that had laid out his life as to what it would be like. There were prophets, there were priests, there were kings, there were judges. They were all sinners, the best of them. And worse, they died. And it was never clear who was going to succeed them, what kind of person they would be. But then there was a promise in Isaiah that a virgin would conceive and she would conceive one called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And his name would be Emmanuel, which means, sure all the kids know that, God with us. God with us. And so, when John appeared, baptizing and calling people to repentance, Jesus appeared to John to be baptized. John objected. I should be baptized by you. you, you should, I, don't, I shouldn't baptize you. But Jesus said, no. We must do this to fulfill all righteousness. How was Jesus' baptism among those who are sinners going to fulfill righteousness? How is this not going to be confusing? Well, he knew very well as he learned of his mission as Messiah from the Old Testament that he was to be numbered with the transgressors. And that didn't happen just when he was crucified. It happened from 
the time he was born. He was born among transgressors. He lived among them. He grew up among them. And now, to begin his ministry to his people who will be baptized by John. And God was pleased. The Father sent the Spirit down in the form of a dove, pouring out His Spirit in an entirely new way on the human nature of Jesus that would enable Him to fulfill His responsibility in life and in death. And the voice, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Well, we know about His life, His teaching, miracles, there was nothing, it was an obstacle. Blindness, deafness, people lame, the sick of every sort, the dead. The winds and waves heard his voice. And I don't know if you noticed, but when he called the wind to stop, the waves stopped as well. And anybody who's been in any kind of boating knows that when winds are blowing, even if they stop, the waves keep going. All of it, perfect calm. The master of all things of creation. Well, throughout his ministry, he was creating enormous envy by the leadership and fear, lest their place be taken away and they no longer have a standing. So as we know the story so well, he was accused of blasphemy when they put him on oath at his trial when he told the truth. You'll never see me again until you see me coming in clouds of glory. Quoting Daniel 7 of the glorious one who took all authority from the ancient of days in that vision that Daniel had. And Pilate three times proclaimed him innocent but had him flogged and crucified anyway so that he might bear as a man our sins. Represent us in his human nature. And he did on the cross. Upheld by the Holy Spirit. He could only endure the wrath, the infinite wrath of God against his human nature on the cross by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself up to God, says Hebrews. The perfect sacrifice. He was buried. He rose. The grave clothes left right where they were. He was seen by hundreds of those who had put their trust in Him in order that they might be confirmed in what they were taught and what He had said to them. They saw Him ascend to heaven and He sat down. Unlike every other priest in the tabernacle or temple because there was no chair in either one. Ceaseless work. Ceaseless sacrifices. But by His one sacrifice He had accomplished all of what that had pictured. And he sat down. And he was given all authority in heaven and earth as the God-man. And he was given the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for his people. And that brings us to the second aspect of his work. There's that first aspect that is completely outside of us. Historic. Finished. Done. Cannot be altered, improved, Or diminished. But the question then is. How do we benefit from this? How does this plan of God. This person. God and man. 
and all his work, how will we benefit? That brings us to the second part of Jesus' work. By the power of the Holy Spirit, poured out at Pentecost in a totally new degree. The Holy Spirit was always at work from the from creation, certainly throughout the Old Testament, but an entirely new degree poured out because of the work of Christ, enabling people to become alive spiritually, who are otherwise totally dead in trespasses and sins, says Paul. And by that enlivening of them, when they hear the gospel, when they hear the kinds of things I'm saying to us today, the Holy Spirit and dead people, completely dead, hostile to God, consumed with themselves, utterly given over to the things of this world, new life is created. And the first sign of that, like a baby, they cry. And what does the baby cry? I agree with you, God. I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I don't have any hope in myself. I've offended you infinitely, and I deserve the punishment that your word says I do. But I believe. And the gift of faith is given. And they don't just believe anything. They believe Jesus has come into the world to save them. And he will. And they put their trust in him. And that brings us to our wonderful text here. Paul's been telling the Romans about how bad sin is in chapters 1 and 2. And then in 3, he talks about the salvation that we've described. And then in chapter 4, he uses Abraham as an example. And when he finishes that, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with him. And he's not at war with us. Because of his son and his love for his son and his son's obedience unto death and having poured out his spirit, we are able to believe and agree with God against ourselves and happy to do it because it gives us hope. And so Paul goes on to say here, doesn't he? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access into this grace in which we stand. It's like grace is a massive wonderful garden with a mansion and we've been given access through the gates and the gate is Christ and it's all open to us and we rejoice he says we boast it's translated rejoice sometimes it's translated exult we have such joy in the hope of the glory of God and what is that hope of the glory of God it's that this Jesus is coming back that's the end of history. That's what we should hope for. That should be the longing of our hearts to see this person. To be able to fall before him and say, you died for me. You took on my nature to save me. Hope of the glory of God. But Paul doesn't stop there. And we must not, when we are thinking about this eternal thanksgiving, because everyone who is given faith on which hope grows is going to be tested. Every true Christian is going to be tested in one way or the other. Particularly if we are faithful and we stand for the truth against every lie that is out there. Because every other religion in one way or the other says it's something you must do 
to please whoever the God is that you believe in. Whereas we say, absolutely wrong. It's what God has done that we must accept and take it on faith and joy. So Paul says, we not only rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in tribulations. Paul, did you really mean to write that? I mean, look at your own life. Was it a happy life? Well, read about it in particularly 2 Corinthians, the things he suffered. He, he said this light, afflict, momentary affliction is working for us a far greater weight of glory. And here he says, we rejoice in tribulations, not because we like to be tortured, but because we know what they produce. It produces endurance or perseverance, and that produces proven character, and that produces hope a whole new layer of hope, a whole new dimension to hope, and that hope's not going to put us to shame. We're never going to say, I'm ashamed of what I believed. We're never going to be sorry that we put our trust in this wonderful Christ. And that brings us to Abraham and the story that was read earlier this morning. Genesis 22 comes late in the life of Abraham. And he's held up as a model by Paul in Romans 4 of faith and of a man justified by faith, made right with God. When God said to Abraham, leave home, Hebrews 11 says he went out, he didn't know where he was going. We would think of that as somebody who's out of their mind. They're not really thinking properly, but that's what Abraham did because he believed God and he trusted him. Now, Abraham wasn't perfect and he had his own plan of solving the promise of God through another means that Sarah suggested. When all that was done with, God gave him Isaac. And when he heard that he was going to have a son, and he and Sarah being so old, they both laughed. So God laughed back. He gave them Isaac, which means laughter. He gave them the joy of this boy. And oh, you can be sure, every bit of Abraham's of, of satisfaction and hope and enthusiasm was in this boy. And so the incredible words of Genesis 22 begin this way. After these things, God tested Abraham. Everyone who's a believer is going to be tested, as I say. It's the pattern of Scripture. It's the way God matures us in hope and faith and particularly in love. And this passage, these early verses of Genesis 22 is the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. That may surprise us. doesn't mean it wasn't there before, but it's not mentioned. And it's important to see where God mentions things the first time. He doesn't mention specifically the command to love God until Deuteronomy. But here, here's what God says to have Abraham, and he says, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Every one of those words should be emphasized. They're deliberate. Okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? I want you to take him to a mountain that I will tell you, and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. It is astounding what the Bible doesn't tell us at times, isn't it? 
We don't read of any reaction that Abraham had. He says nothing at this point. All we read in the next verse is that he got up early in the morning. He didn't hesitate to obey this God. Took the boy, he took two helpers, he saddled the donkey, put the wood on it after he'd cut it. And they go three days, three days Abraham had to think on what God had asked him to do. Silence. Until he gets to the place where God had indicated and he can see it at a distance. And he says to the two boys, two men who were with him, you stay here, I and the boy will go and worship and we will return to you. That we is critical. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham believed in the promise of God to such an extent that he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. Which they, the, the Hebrews writer says, in effect he did. For in Abraham's mind, Isaac was as good as dead at that moment. Faith persevering through hope into the fear of God, which is the basis of really loving God, realizing who He is and all of His awesome greatness. And we know the rest of the story, except punctuated by Isaac's words to his father, Father, you have the wood, you have the fire. Where's the lamb? What a question for Abraham. What's he going to say? God will provide. He will see to it, literally. He will see to it that there's a lamb, my son. God has no truck with sacrifices without blood and death because that's what sin deserves. He will provide a lamb. And he did at the moment when Abraham would have slain his son. God calls out and says, now I see that basically you love me more than you love Isaac. Isaac is not an idol in your life. And you have acknowledged that I'm your God. And so he delivers him. And there's a ram caught in the thicket and the Lord provided right on the hill. Well, I want us to focus ourselves here on the Lord Jesus Christ once more. There was never a man of faith like Jesus. As I say, Jesus learned of his Messiahship as man from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament, from reading it, hearing it read, learning of what he would be, that he would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he would be the one eventually to scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would learn that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were nothing but a picture of what he must do. And he believed God. And he had hope. He had hope because the promise of resurrection was also there. And he believed God through to the end. And when it came time for him to suffer, there was no father to call out from heaven to say, don't go through with this. Stop. I'll deliver you. No. There was no other way for us to be deemed righteous and given all that we have in the Lord Jesus unless he dies. The Father abandoned him. And that's why he cried as he did and persevered through to the end. 
So for us, the scripture tells us to consider him. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we want a ground that will persevere past all of the other things that completely rightly we give thanks for, all the physical blessings, all the people in our lives, all the encouragement that we get from books, from everything, from work, from the joys that we have in living and being healthy and able to do what we do, those are all wonderful things and should be given thanks for continually. They'll all pass away, dear people. We'll grow old. We'll lose our powers. We'll lose our abilities. We'll not be able to do what we did. We may not be able to hear well or see as well or taste as well. But if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the grounds of eternal thanksgiving. Forever and ever, the saints will be giving thanks to this glorious, glorious God who became man because he loved us. Because the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts, giving us a sense that God truly loves us. Final word is about this table. It is very easy, it could be, for us, observing a Lord's Supper every week, to take this for granted. To come in some way without recognizing what's happening here, what this means, even though it is well explained. One of the words to describe the supper is Eucharist, which is nothing more than the Greek word for thanksgiving. Coming to this table is a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of gratitude to God for such a Savior. So this morning, with renewed zeal and hope, and I hope a sense of the love of God for you, dear saint, you who put your trust in Christ, you who find him the solid rock where you stand, you can have renewed thanksgiving in this week of thanksgiving for this person. For any of you here who don't yet believe in this Lord Jesus Christ, have not, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, committed yourself with a wholehearted trust to him. Not just the, 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 the ideas in your head that you know about Jesus. You know the things about him. The devils know the things about Jesus. And they shiver. But if that knowledge is not penetrated to your heart to welcome him, to agree with him about yourself, and to ask Him to forgive your sins and become your Savior and Lord and to guide your life and lead you into paths of righteousness for His namesake. Today is the day. Don't fail to hear His voice. He's calling you. Don't say no. You'll never regret it. It will be a hope that you will never be ashamed of. And if you do believe, well, the angels in heaven will start singing because they sing every single new believer into the fellowship. What a privilege. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you so much for the reality of what your word promised, emphasized through all the rites and sacrifices of the old covenant, 
So many prophets and priests, kings, others among the people of Israel and Judah longed to see this Redeemer. The New Testament tells us they didn't see Him yet because they knew they were serving us. We who on this side of the cross, we who have the Gospels and the life of Jesus presented before us, we who have the record of the early church breaking out under the power of the Holy Spirit, unashamed and willing to suffer, even to the point of death, the case of Stephen, James, and later all those apostles except John, giving their life for the Gospel. We hear it explained to us so clearly in the epistles and the glory of Christ in His reigning in the book of Revelation. Oh Father, what grounds we have for eternal thanksgiving to You for Your Son. So come upon us. Give us a new sense of this this morning. And for any who are here, oh gracious Holy Spirit, that don't know You, that don't know the Lord Jesus, don't know this joy of sins forgiven and being right with God and having access to Him at all times. Draw them to Yourself. Convince them of the glory of the Gospel. For all of this, Lord, we pray that Jesus Christ would be praised. To Him would be all the glory now and forevermore. Amen.